The reasons to treat yourself to a frozen drink from Mickey D's go on and on and on. It's more than a drink. It's a Mickey D's drink. Your new flavor craze is here. From sweet and fruity frozen Fanta Wild Cherry to the classic cool of a frozen Coca-Cola to the tasty and tart frozen Fanta Blue Raspberry. Get any size for $1.59. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Welcome to Mouth Off, a podcast brought to you by Forget Me Not Productions. I'm Clary Sadler, and so far on the series, I've interviewed a range of people from all walks of life. People whom I consider, in some capacity, to represent marginalized groups. In this episode, I'll be talking to Emma Stroud. Emma is an MC, performer, speaker, mentor, businesswoman, writer, director, and host of the Top 50 podcast series, Clowning Around. Emma also hosts a number of national business events, including the European Women in Sales Awards at the Savoy Hotel, the European Women in Construction and Engineering Awards, and the Business Women in Action National Conference. Emma wants to help clients laugh, think, and play. The modern-day female Josh Baskin from the film Big, as it were. She runs funny and quirky interactive talks, both online and in person, covering a range of topics such as be the best you, improvisation in business, and mental well-being for leaders and teams. Emma also writes and creates theatre shows such as her one-woman show, Me, M, about her own mental health journey. She's also a coach with TruthWorks and has given several TEDx talks. Well, hello. That's quite an eclectic list of skills there, Emma. And you've been podcasting. I've, I've caught a couple of your episodes in random order. Um, well, I always think that's a good idea, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's all right, actually. You know. I th- yeah, I think I, I, I listened to the very first just to get a flavour for it. And then I just kind of skipped through and picked one at random. <laughs> I forget the, the guy that you're talking to, techie guy. Um, oh, Steve. Yes, oh, the CTO of King. That's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I thought, oh, well, there we go. I've got to get Emma on the podcast now. <laughs> Just in the hope that I meet Barbara. <laughs> that would be quite nice. Yeah, I mean, Barbara does have a bit of a tendency of popping up. So, you know, I never, you know, I mean, like Barbara's been around for a long time, but Barbara definitely found her home in, in clowning around. And then my my other clown, Orange, is in my other show and is now in my book that I'm writing at the moment so yeah it's yeah who knows it's all a bit mad your background in a nutshell do you think of yourself mostly now Emma so we've got MC performer speaker mentor businesswoman writer podcast host <laughs> yeah add the word clown to that because that's clown of course thing for me that's become quite a big thing for me I don't know I I you know what, it's, it's an interesting question because I think for me, I think quite often society wants to try and kind of go, right, so where where are you happiest and where is it that you're most, put yourself and, and almost sort of put your, where are you going to put your coat on which sort of peg are you going to put your coat on? And actually, I love the fact that I get to go and play all these different things. One of the things that I've really worked out is that if I, so for a while I did go through this time where I stopped performing for a few years because I thought, going to be in the business world and in order to be successful in the business world I need to focus on that and then I'll grow a business then I'll sell it and then once I've done that then I'll do what I should do actually that was a you know that was a whole load of uh, 
that that was just some weird society myth that I'd created and started to follow. So as I kind of sit here now in what 2020 in this beautiful sort of crazy lockdown end of time, mm-hmm. um, I'm actually really very content just sort of going, you know what, I do loads of different things and every piece of work that I do, I kind of always start with the question of, does it make my heart sing? And if the answer is yes, then I'll take it on. And if it doesn't make my heart sing, then I'll move away from it. Not to be like a politician, because I don't think some of them are doing that well. But in essence, mm. I kind of think I'm all of them, but in essence, none of them. Because I just like I like kind of doing the stuff that, you know, makes a difference and makes an impact. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. You know, same with me to a degree. I'm not where I started out and, you know, did a a degree in education and became a teacher for a a short time in the middle of it all and now found myself doing something I never thought I'd be involved with sort of the the inclusive arts and working with people with profound disabilities but Mm. still kind of underpinned by the performer the music and Mm. all that sort of side of things so and it's yes. interesting, isn't it? Because all these different threads, you know, throughout all of that, there's always been a thread, you know, teaching in a certain way is, is a sort of performance, isn't it? You know, Definitely. using music, using the musicality, all the stuff that, you know, we both learn as sort of trained actors, all of that. There are all of the threads, you know, and I think you could kind of see them as all separate threads from an outsider's perspective. But I think when you've lived it, it all really does make perfect sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So well done us. <laughs> well done us, definitely. <laughs> so um, you ran your own theatre company for a time, Abandoned Theatre, is that right? I did. Wow, you really have, you really have done your googling. I've done, I have googled. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear me. I mean, interesting thing, because most people when they google me, they're like, oh, I recognise you. And I sort of go through all the various different things, and then I go, have you seen my TED Talk where I'm dressed as a banana? And they're like, oh yeah! that's it um so yeah you know sort of gosh okay about sort of 15 16 years yeah I came to London became an actor and I think I'd always known even at drama school I, I never really wanted to always be sort of beholden to other people to give me opportunities and uh and I was lucky like my first year of acting I was pretty much working all of the time which is genuinely very lucky and then I met the people that I then was like actually we could do this so we could set up our own theatre company we can create our own work and and so we did so and honestly the, the abandoned thing came from uh, we realized that we wanted to be the listings and so we went well, it's got to be a and all of our productions was already taken and then we came up with abandoned because it was um the actual definition of abandoned which is a uh, freedom from inhibition and we were like oh my god that's perfect freedom from inhibition sort of seven eight years of my life um going to Edinburgh, doing shows up there, running in pro companies. Um, we had a sort of really successful residency in London. We took it on tour, went to Northern Ireland. And yeah, and I look back at it fondly, but, you know, it was also, that was when I we sort of worked out that in order to fund it, we could also play in the business world. So we sort of started off very, uh, sort of very logically doing quite traditional presentations. And I've always found the psychology of people really interesting. So I think, if you're going to be an actor, I think you have to find people interesting. And uh, and then suddenly I'd stop performing. And, you know, fast forward to now and I'm doing sort of one woman shows. You know, and I sort of fast forward, but I needed all of that experience and that journey to get to where I am now, which is cool. And only 25. Oh, you've turned into a robot again. Oh, this is really strange. One, two, one, two. 
I like I like the clap test there as well. That was particularly you can tell you're a musician. It's like, what are you what are you doing? I'm just doing the clap test. <laughs> ma, 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 ma. Yep, everything's working. Good. One, two, four, seven. <laughs> I'll carry on from where I was and I'm sure there's something I can I can edit out and edit in that'll make it sound maybe I'll be interviewing your alter ego. Emma Robot, and that'll be the information <laughs> of the first part of it. Yeah, just in case I need to put another old three go out into the world. It'd be like, yeah, his, and his M the robot. <laughs> that sounded like the theme from the bill, that little bit. Then. Oh my God, it did a bit, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. Wow. A very important seminal programme, of course. <laughs> didn't you do the bill? I made that up. Did you do the bill? No, unfortunately. I, I thought it was. Yeah, obviously, you would have been, you know, <laughs> deeply proud of that on your CV. It's like, what oh, did you yeah. do? I was in the bill. <laughs> what did you I was, say? Prisoner for? Yeah, I was once a red alien in Doctor Who. That's similar. I mean, <laughs> I, did have, I did have a name. I didn't have any lines, but I did have a name. I was the Red Lady. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> and I got to do a stunt... Oh, with did a harness you? and everything. Mm-hmm. Oh my word! You lived the acting dream. I did, and I got yes, I got to be suspended from the ceiling to make Brilliant. it look like I was floating, and I Brilliant. got to be in makeup for two and a half hours every day Woo-hoo! for nine days. <laughs> and that was when you knew that you had made it. <laughs> definitely, definitely. <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know why I didn't stick with the acting, because obviously, you know, I could have gone on to play other aliens in Doctor Who, paint me another colour, you know. Yeah, exactly, other colour. Could have been like, right, okay, today I'm going to be purple. In the businessy stuff then, the mentoring Mm. and that side of things. Now, as a fellow thespian... Mm -hmm. And fellow lesbian, but that's another story. Mm-hmm. But as a, as a fellow lesbian, right? Well, isn't it? it? Just kind of gives us a an extra level of beauty there. It does. It does. I, I get how having a background, you know, in performing and improvisation would lend itself to the world of business and to mentoring, coaching, that kind of thing. I'm sure there's many average Joes out there, though, that you know possibly even listening to this podcast, that might think, surely that's like never the twain shall meet. How do, how do you marry those two? How did that shift come about for, for you from, you know, well, as a performer to business entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think before I'd gone to drama school, I'd, my dad was an entrepreneur, so I think I'd always had that as a bit of a grounding. And before I went to drama school, I... I'd had experience of sort of being very much in the sales world and I was always sort of naturally quite gifted in terms of yeah connecting with customers and understanding that actually you just need to you know really listen um and then when I when I decided to go to drama school which is actually how we met uh you know I'd, I'd actually just been offered um a regional sales director job now a very well-known firm so I had the sort of the head moment of do I go and become a regional sales director or do I go to drama school and I decided to follow my heart, which I'm really grateful for, um, and ended up going to drama school. When I left, uh, you know, again, you know, I was always really interested in people. And so, yes, I was acting for most of the time. But the other time that I wasn't acting, sort of fallen back into sort of the sales side. And because I'd 
always found selling fairly easy before I knew it. I was training other people how to do it. And then as that sort of side developed, and then I sort of ended up doing the route of, yeah, sort of presentation skills, I then kind of just got genuinely fascinated with the world of coaching and NLP, and I became a trained hypnotherapist. And all of it really, there's so many parallels and there's so many things because I think what lots of people in the world of business don't do is they don't think about how they're delivering whatever it is that they're delivering. And as performers, we spend a lot of time thinking about the how we're going to deliver the what. And actually, for me, it's it's just sort of shifting that mindset and it's about really helping people in business go, it's great. Anybody that I work with, I have to make an assumption that they know what they do. So, I mean, I work with so many different people, it's bonkers. But I have to assume that they're really good and they know their stuff. Just like I've spent 20 years getting really good to think of what I do and how I can help them. And so weirdly, I think I've always been somewhere in the middle between business and performing. But it's only been the last couple of years that I've been really okay with that and really owning that for me, which has been a really lovely gift. Do you spend time or did you used to spend time justifying sort of the existence of each of those sides of yourself to people <laughs> that sort of go, well, yeah, you're a businesswoman, but you, you're an actor. Yeah. Well. I mean, yeah. I know. I mean, yeah, you've, I mean, you've, you've nailed sort of quite a lot of my own internal struggles. There was a period of time where I definitely was masked up. And so in the business world, I wouldn't really tell them that I would, was a performer because I was worried that they wouldn't take me seriously. And in the performing world, I'd never tell them that I was in the business world because they just thought I was mad. And I didn't mix them. The really interesting thing now is I won't take on any work where I know that I'm going to have to justify my worth. And because you know I've developed a pretty good reputation, all of my work all comes through word of mouth. And before I agree to take any project on, I always make sure that people get me. And I'm not right for everywhere. And I really understand that. But it's now, no, I don't justify it. Because that's a waste of their time. It's a waste of my time. I want to walk into places where people are curious, where they're open-hearted, and they'll take themselves into different places. And then they'll take what they need. And that's so important, isn't it? You know, for your own sanity and mental health as well you don't want to feel like as you said if there's been an internal struggle for you you don't want to be faced with that or when you're going in and doing your thing you know and you shouldn't it's not like someone goes into their job in a bank and spends the time as a cashier explaining to the customer why <laughs> you know I'm a musician as well <laughs> Do you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm a banker <laughs> and that's okay <laughs> yeah and it is and I think there's a really weird societal thing of of you know, of us desperately trying to want, want to put people into boxes and, you know, and, and to a certain extent, of course, I get that because we're human. And the key thing for me is about being really kind to yourself and actually, you know, allowing yourself to be all of you and then finding the places where people are massively drawn to you and not going into places where you have to sort of fight. Um, because actually there's loads of places where, you know, there's space for everybody. And I think that's something that in the last few years, it's really dawned on me. You know, there's space for everybody. There's abundance for everybody. And by being very clear about who you are, it makes it a lot easier for the right people to find you. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think for myself as well, the whole mm. teacher and performer background, mm. for a long time after I left teaching and went back into mm. performing, if I spoke to a non-performer about what it is I did, I would always lead it with, I'm a qualified teacher, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. as if that justified the bombshell I was about to drop that now... I'm a freelance performer. <laughs> yeah. Like shock, horror, dum, dum, dum. 
and I don't do that anymore. Very good. And it is because it's ownership of our own identity, isn't it? And I think that's something that's really important. And I think us women, we struggle to own who it is that we are far more than men. Obviously, I'm making a generalisation. There are some men that really struggle with it. But I think there's something innate about us as women that's sort of like, oh, can I say that? Because what if somebody says that? Oh, and, you know, we're both mothers and it's that whole thing. And we're, you know, we're gay. And it's like, and all of those different pieces of identity is... And it's really important to own things and actually have the courage to go, this is what I am, and not having to then, as you say, go, I was a qualified teacher. Oh, and now I'm a performer. It's like, let all of that go, you know, and it's like, this is who I am. And if you like it, cool. And if you don't, that's also cool because I'm okay being who I am. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's part of the reason I wanted to start this podcast, you know, Mm. to shine a light on, I mean, partly to shine a light on taboo topics. So, Mm-hmm. We have done episodes on things like, as I said, grief, depression, yep. mental health. Um, yep. But, you know, also that I am what I am and here I am and I'm proud, as cliche as that sounds. I think the hope is, yeah, talking about these things and hopefully getting a few listeners, you know, will help remove the stigma. Things like mental health, you know, there's still such a stigma. I know it's getting better, but it is mm. still there. You know, and, and the phrase that pays now is is mindfulness. And actually, I had Anne-Marie Lewis-Thomas on the podcast talking about this. Mm. She's done the hashtag Time for Change. Yep. You're familiar with. And yeah, it's great. But she said, you know, there is it is kind of going towards mindfulness now. And rather than just kind of going, yeah, this is mental illness. These are people that suffer. Yeah, it's, it's still a thing, yeah. you know? Yeah, and it is how do we own it. So on my podcast, I was talking about Rob who created this thing called the Form School. He's worked with business leaders and basically created a table of um, the top 250 business leaders who are actually being open about their mental health. And this whole idea about Form School is that on your email, you put where you are from one to ten people actually have an actual cognizant idea about how your day is going and how you are in terms of mental health. Because, you know, he's like, I've got bipolar, you know, I have a mental illness and I need other people to understand that this isn't something that you can meditate away. It is something Mm -hmm. that I live with. And now I'm, you know, I'm massively, I'm a big fan of meditation. I think it's really got its place, but I think the conversations that are going on in terms of mental health have to be braver. They have to be bolder. And, you know, and I, you know, I talk about my own mental health challenges in my current show because I think, you know, it's the only way that things are going to change is if we all have the courage to share our stories. And, you know, you and I being both performers, that's our vehicle. That's one of our ways, whether we put it through music or we put it through theatre or film or whatever else, that's our portal. For some of your listeners, no doubt they might be like, but I'm not creative. And it's like, you don't have to do it in that way. It could just be as simple as actually just going around to a friend and going, I need to talk to you and just talking it doesn't have to end up in some big show or a song but for me that's kind of you know that's my way of expressing myself you know no doubt same as you when you're writing songs yeah I mean you mentioned earlier we met at drama school Hertfordshire Theatre School we did indeed it must have been the year 2000 or 2001 that you joined there yeah I I joined 2001 because you were in third year so like you guys were like really cool because you already (laughs) knew how to act and I was like (laughs) ah gosh before the internet began. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I think the internet started becoming a thing around about there. Yeah. 
I remember yeah, it. I remember living in Hitchin and having mm. dial-up internet, you know, yes. and it has a little ringtone as it tried to connect. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the world is, is, a, is a poorer place for the fact that, you know, we never got to share some of our beautiful, you know, open minds on the world of Facebook, you know, exactly. they've gone. <laughs> no ever know how bad we sounded. <laughs> oh no, it was brilliant, I'm sure. <laughs> of course it was, yeah. I mean, we're both very new performers, so it's fine. <laughs> Actually, I think the, the first thing I did after graduating mm. was a show that you had written called Mind. And oh my goodness me, this is like some, ah, yeah. <laughs> we did, I had a, a little cameo role as the, um, I don't know, the mental health uh, professional, doctor, psychiatrist, something like that. Yes. And we did a two-day run in the Exeter Fringe Festival. And oh I think my a friend God. of yours, Natalie McGrath, have I remembered that right? That is very good. And she still is a friend of mine and she's an amazing playwright and she does some amazing stuff. I had completely forgotten that indeed we, as part of my first theatre company, great name, Purple Penguin Productions, you did indeed come down and, yeah, you were the doctor while I was doing multiple personality disorder show. (laughs) I did, so it was really fun and light, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it explored mental illness. Not a topic that got loads of coverage back in 2002, unless you were someone that liked Claire Dowie and her work. Yeah. Um, Adult Child. I can't think of the name of it now. Oh, gosh, there was that thing. Adult, was that yeah, adult. That's right. Adult Child's Dead yeah. Child was a monologue and was that was floating the mon- around. And was there the monologue all about tuna fish? That was tuna fish monologue, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. <laughs> I mean, it was... that didn't go to drums, I apologise, we have just suddenly gone very geeky, but seminal monologues of the early 2000s. So there you go, kid. <laughs> there you go. And it was, well, Claire Dowie and you writing about these issues. I mean, as a writer, wow. I guess, and a performer. Yeah. On a personal level, how important was it, and indeed is it, for you to highlight these issues? Um, I mean, honestly, that that particular show, I had put away, I yeah, this is the first time I thought about that show for a very long time. I think that particular piece of theatre was probably my first exploration into being brave with my own voice in terms of starting to play with the idea about mental health. And at the time when, you know, in 2002, when you and I first met, I, you know, I kind of came from quite shit uh, childhood and I hadn't really dealt with it in any way, shape or form. So I'd come from, you know, there'd been quite a lot of emotional trauma, there'd been grief, there'd been quite a lot of stuff that had kind of left me to that place where I didn't even realise it at the time, but actually it was driving a lot of my behaviour. And that show, that mind show that we did, actually was probably the, yeah, was the first sort of portal into how can I use my performance stuff to explore what's going on in the the deep sort of recesses of my brain and then if I fast forward to sort of you know the last couple of years and my current show which is called Me M it's called Me M because I had come up with a name and then I decided that Me M was quite clever because it was a mirror of my name and it's a show about me so I went that'll do (laughs) so that's how I came up with the name I was like it's autobiographical as I did that show I was I'm very blessed I've got the most amazing Hamid Ali and she knew that I wanted to write, so this is my second one on the show, and she knew that I wanted to write a piece about identity. And it became really clear that in order to do the piece about identity, I had to 
tell some stories about my childhood that I never had done. And so in a very long-winded answer, writing and then performing has probably been at the heart of my very own healing process. But when we did that piece, I didn't, I was definitely not self-aware enough to know that that was doing. Whereas now, after lots of therapy and lots of coaching and lots of work on myself, I'm now aware that that's definitely the way that I process not only my past, but, you know, other things that I witnessed. So you've jumped ahead with the Emotional Regent show. So somewhere in in between there, in the, was it 2015, 2016, your one woman show coming out of my box? Yeah. Yeah, So I read read up a bit on this. Um, I was impressed to see you won the Ultimate Planet Lesbian Oscar. (laughs) I I did. I did. And it's sitting proudly (laughs) over on my on my shelf in my kitchen. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit more about that particular show and how that came about? Yeah, so that one, yeah, that was again, it was a real sort of uh it was a really important moment. So as I've already alluded to, I'd I'd pretty much stopped performing theatre. I was still doing improv comedy, but theatre I'd sort of dropped out of. And then want a better description it was like no I've got to got to got to do something and I found it the boxes that people and myself had put me in I sort of wanted to challenge that and I wanted to do it in a way so that I could give an insight to the audience of why do why are you putting yourself in a box you know why are you if you are why are you sort of uh, sort of limiting yourself so I ended up coming up with I think there were seven boxes that I had either put myself in or other people had um so the first one was a teenage boy except I'm a girl because I always had short <laughs> hair but everyone thought I was a boy um and then it was sex machine hetero except I'm gay so very funny stories about that uh you know Clown, except I'm an observer, because even then I knew that I loved clowning and that clowning is about the observation. Uh, victim, except I'm not one. What's the one? Lesbian, except I prefer gay, which I probably now say is different. Mother, no exceptions. Um, businesswoman, except I'm a performer. Within each of those boxes, what I wanted to explore with the stories around that and made it into a show that sort of went along my life. And just and at the end of it, it was the, the whole sort of point of my kind of end line was in essence you know um but actually I'm none of these boxes I'm all of them but I'm more and so don't uh, just the same as you don't put yourself in the box and it went really well and people really liked it so that was yeah that was my first one on the show which indeed did win the lesbian awards <laughs> Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online I was only playing for fun so winning was a dream come true Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino you too could have the chance to win life changing cash prizes absolutely anybody could be like Mary be like Mary log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details the voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner okay so links to that show mm. and the boxes that either yep. other people put put us in or self-inflicted if you could go back in time well, firstly which decade would you go back to and why i must know right. that and secondly okay. as an experienced mentor yourself a coach what would you yep. say to your 19 year old self or 18 year old self Oh, these are these are deep, man. You're good. Have a casual podcast chat with Claire, and you're going to go deep. <laughs> this is what happens. Which decade would I go back to? Jeez, 
Um, I would, yeah, oh God. Um, because the really, I think the reason that I'm struggling to answer that is that this decade that I'm in now is the happiest that I've ever been. So it's really hard for me to go to have a sort of desire. I think there's a part of me that would probably go back to, um, yeah, probably the early, no, the mid eighties. So I was really little and my dad was still alive. So I think if, yeah, if I was to go back any to any decade, it would probably be to go back and go and hang out a bit more with my dad. So that yeah. would probably be where I'd go back to. I wrote a post about this. It was my birthday last month. And, um, one of the things that, I mean, first the chance that I might not choose to stay alive. And I always had that thing. And I was like, if I make it 21, I think I'll probably live a full life. But there were certain times when I was 19, 1920, where it was very ropey with what was going on in my head. If I went and met my 19-year-old self now, I think I'd take her out for a, a drink and I would just sit her down and just be like, it's all right and you should be allowed to feel stuff and you don't have to be scared and then my 19 year old self would be like fuck off i'm gonna have a fag buy me another beer then i would just hopefully gently give her space so that my 19 year old self stop a bit kinder to herself um rather than waiting until i was in my 30s that's a good answer <laughs> thanks <laughs> That was quite deep. You got quite deep yourself. Well, you, you, well, you asked me the question, you know. I mean, this is what happens when you talk to a clown, you know. Um, this is this is where clowns go. Deep clown. <laughs> so you're juggling lots of proverbial balls in the air. Performer, you've discussed. Entrepreneur, you've discussed to a degree. Mum, mm. you've mentioned. You said at the start, you're a bit of a jack of all... I guess male-dominated trades. Mum, obviously, withstanding. <laughs> Less so. Yeah. Not withstanding, I mean. How do you navigate these worlds? You know, how do you avoid discrimination that many mums in the workplace face? I mean, I know you said you co-parent. Does that make it easier? Or do you still find that people, you know, have an attitude about you being a successful businesswoman, for instance, and a mum? Um... I had a deep-rooted fear when William first started going to school. I suddenly went into, these mothers will never get on with me. I'm never going to, they're never going to accept me. They're not going to think I'm a proper mother because I co-parent. So do I get discrimination in the workplace? Not really, because I'm in charge of my own world and my own destiny. Um, there was a period of time where people were wanting me to go and, dare I say it, sort of raise a flag for sort of being a gay parent and co-parenting and to go down that route and to sort of be a sort of real big advocate for it. And I was like, no, and that's just not my calling. The challenge for us as women, this is regardless of whether, you know, with your gay straight eye or whatever, is how high up our identity is linked with motherhood. And I love my son and he is brilliant. And he's one of the most amazing things that's ever happened in my life, if not the most amazing thing that's ever happened in my life. That being said, because I've co-parented ever since he was a baby, um, I've always also had my own identity as Emma. And I think it's a really, for me, that's a really important message for him because it's like I get to go off and be an adult and I don't have to worry about him because he's with his dad. And so when I am around work, I make sure now that I don't take gigs when I've got William and I, and I, and I don't sort of, you know, so I go and pick him up from school and I drop him off at school and stuff like that. And so... I'm kind of lucky. I don't get the discrimination. And um, what I did get, which obviously being a comic did, was kind of beautiful sort of comedy fodder. 
of the I was involved with this kind of fairly well-known uh, entrepreneurial network of loads of women when they all kind of knew me fairly well they knew I was gay quite apparent that I was pregnant and these were all awfully British sort of business women and you could see their brains going hang on a minute you're gay and so me being me because I'm a clown just went whatever you're thinking is true and the turkey baster is bigger than you can imagine and then I ran off <laughs> so so I just sort of in a weird sort of way it's um I don't know I've for me motherhood and making that choice to become a mum uh, I'm just wanting to do it in my own way and for me the example that is the most important thing is what I said to William and so I think me going off and following and living my best life is the best bit of motherhood that I can do for him. So what extent you know of your life experiences as a gay woman with your own Emma identity and I guess as mum of William as well co-parent you know have they or to what extent have they shaped your creativity? Or have they at all? <laughs> um, I think it has. I think in terms of, I think it's helped. I think having a child, I think, means that I've always had an inner drive. And I think that inner drive in terms of, I'm going to make stuff happen. You know, it's a bit like, you know, you've made a decision to create a podcast. No one else has kind of gone, Boop you know and, and I think there's something about some performers that we are massively self-sufficient and self-starters and I think since having William I think that level of responsibility that I feel in terms of wanting not even on a financial level it's just I want him to witness me living my best life and in order for him to witness that I think that's what's driven my creativity and I think after he was born I think I realised I wasn't living my perhaps my best life. And so it's no surprise to me that since William's been born, I've been more prolific creatively. I've got back into writing and performing. I've got a successful podcast. I'm writing a book. Um, I'm writing a musical, which is completely nuts because I don't even really like musical theatre, even though we're in <laughs> it, as you well know. Um, you know, and, I, and I've got, you know, so it doesn't surprise me that actually my creativity has completely shifted I think that's the duty as a parent is to be the best you that you can be. And for me, that involves me playing in the world of creativity. God, I've never thought about it like that. God, you're good. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, when we first started speaking tonight, you said that usually when people Google you, it's the Mm. TEDx talk. um, Yeah. 2017, was it? I think, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. With you dressed as a banana to deliver your speech. And that's the first thing that sort of tends to pop up, or maybe first thing that catches their eye. Mm. I've also done a little bit, delved a bit deeper with the research. So I know you've also performed improvisation with the Banana Bunch. Mm-hmm. And you've mentioned one of your alter egos is an orange. What's the thinking it's behind not, that? Are, are you? It's not, it's, not, it's not an actual orange. That's <laughs> Orange's name. Oh, Orange's <laughs> name. No, yeah. I'm not an actual orange. That would be really weird. But to be fair, because I have dressed up as a banana, I can see why you could make that mistake. But I just thought, is there some fruit obsession? You know, what, what, is, know, it with, it is, what is it with the bananas? It is, it is weird. And so the banana thing came first. So the banana thing was 
uh, I was invited to this entrepreneurial lunch and the theme was uh, Carmen Miranda, which, you know, for those of you that don't know her, she's got that kind of amazing headdress, which has got all the fruit in it. <laughs> and so me being me, all of these other beautiful women were all going to turn up looking resplendent with their, you know, sort of, you know, with pineapples on their dresses. And uh, me and my mate went, why don't I go as a banana? <laughs> so I did. Um, and I got in a cab, um, dressed as a banana. And this tatty just, he just would not believe that I didn't sell bananas. So in the end, I just went, yeah, you're right. I sell bananas. And it was it was on a particular day where, uh, so I went to the lunch, had a great time. And then there I was walking around dressed as a banana. And it really struck me that, Every, I'm not a threatening banana in any way, shape or form. And so I ended up with all of these people, you know, from every different uh, ethnicity, from every gender. And I just ended up having this amazing time. And it made me realise that actually bringing more fun and joy into the world is really important, which is where the idea of being more banana came from. Um, so I did. So that, that, that then sort of ended up steamrolling into this thing where I ended up doing a TED talk about it. And, and with Orange... So orange is one of my clowns. So when I started playing again in the world of clowning, I went and did a, an amazing course with an amazing, probably one of the top clowns in the world, amazing Brazilian woman called De Castro. And you do this sort of exercise where clowns are in essence a part of ourselves. Um, they are a sort of the bit of us that is joyful, that is curious, that is generally really innocent. And clowns by their very nature were the observers of life. And over these couple of weeks of this course, I got to know this clown, Orange. And uh, you do this one particular exercise, and uh, it's all to do with writing a letter. And in that letter, that's when Orange ended up telling me that Orange's name was Orange. Orange is now with me and is a uh, is in my current one woman show. So Orange says stuff that, as Emma, I would never dream of saying. And Orange has this beautiful sort of childlike quality that all orange can see is is beauty and wonder and possibility and it's a it's such a privilege to be in that state why is called orange don't know um, and if orange was around orange probably would tell you but um you know, it's, it's just orange's world so i am aware that it does sound like i've got a fruit fetish just so happened this way <laughs> So you've talked about your business world, I guess, your theatre background. Mm. Some people might think of these as somewhat, uh, I don't know, elitist is the right word, but for your average Joe, maybe working in, I don't know, Tesco or something, Yeah, you know, that thinks theatre is not for them. And again, I'm really generalising, but, yeah. you know, my mum then, if it wasn't for me dragging her to see me in <laughs> shows over the years, you know, she would never yeah. go to theatre to see yeah. the importance of being earnest, for example. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she'd never go to a TED Talk, I shouldn't think. Maybe mm. she would. Sorry, mum. Feel free to prove <laughs> me wrong. <laughs> Unless me or my brother were doing one, I can't see a you know, wanting to, to check one out. How important is it for you to have wide reach, you know, to the people that maybe think this isn't for me? And, okay, let's, let's say as a performer then, just make it a bit easier. Yeah, yeah. You know, for example, then taking your one-woman show, mm. how, do you, how do you get that out to the working-class communities or economically deprived areas you know and is it important for you to try and reach 
those kind of marginalized groups? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely something that I'm I'm aware of. And I think because my life has been so eclectic and you know, I played in lots of different worlds and I, and I don't mean just in sort of theatre and stuff. So, you know, I, I funded being able to go to drama school because I worked in a factory for the entire summer, you know, and I made tax disc holders. Um, I worked in a cheese farm. I worked in a hospital laundry, um, which was one of the toughest and most horrible jobs I've ever had. Um, I was a cleaner um, and I used to go and clean offices and stuff. so I've worked and I've been a grafter and I'm also really aware of how I sound because I came from Surrey and I did go to a private school. So I'm really aware I come from a, especially in the time of Black Lives Matter, I'm aware that I come as white privileged as you probably can do. So it is something that I really think about. And for me, there's sort of three things that I've done. So with Abandoned Theatre, uh, we we went and did a lot of outreach work, working with um young gangs, uh, ex-gang members, young carers and young refugees. And we used theatre in order to help them express the challenges that they were going through. And I learned more in those three years than from them than I probably have done from being in any boardroom. So doing projects like that is really important to me. So that's kind of one side of it. The second side of it is within my show that I'm doing right now, because I think you're right. I think it, unless you've got a real reason, uh, why would you go to the theatre? It's, ex- you know, it's expensive. It's, you know, it's time consuming and all of that stuff. And it is up to us as theatre makers to go, how do we make sure that these things are relevant? And how do we get it so that different audiences are seeing it? So one of the things that I'm doing and I'm working through now and COVID slightly put it on a bit of a sort of longer time frame than I wanted is I'm taking my current show uh, into various businesses um, and they get to see the show in their business. And then afterwards, I then do a, an hour Q&A, which is all to do with identity. Uh, it's all to do with the issues that are in the show. And that way, because I'm taking it into different businesses and it's open to everyone there, I like to think that that then is then having an impact and it's going to have a, a ripple effect. You know, So um, for me, that's a really important piece. And the other bit, which again, as you've rightly said, is that if I can then do that, then what it allows is then a, a certain level of funding, which then means that I can take what I believe is a really important show into the communities that perhaps wouldn't normally be able to afford it or have access to someone like me. And that's very much something that as I'm planning the tour next year, as I say, it's all sort of COVID permitting, that's something that I wanted to put in. Um, now, of course, I'm, you know, I'm one person doing one type of shows. And the other thing for me is also how do I make sure that... Uh, that this gets wider. So one of the things that I'm going to be doing uh, in the next couple of years is, I've already sort of alluded that my kind of life's purpose is to help people laugh, think and play. I want to set up a global movement, which is all to do with laugh, thinking and playing. To make it accessible, I'm going to hopefully create an app so that everybody worldwide can access this. And regardless of where you are economically, wherever you are. So if you are just waking up and, you know, if you think about your mum, your mum wakes up and does a bit of a day. She could just click on there and there'll be a couple of videos from different comedians so that she could have a bit of a giggle. Or if she's feeling like, OK, I need to reflect a little bit, she might go into the think it where there might be some meditation. Or if somebody is in, you know, wherever else in the world, there'll be ideas about how you can play. And for me, 
one of my things that I want to do over the next sort of 10, 15 years is make that a global movement. That's got to include educators and it's got to include business leaders so that we change culturally how we're going to do it. And some of the way that I'll be doing that will also be through my show. So there you go. That's how I'm going to do world domination. There you go. <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> okay, so... I asked you about a week ago to think of, I can't remember how many songs it was now. Was it three songs? Three. It was three songs, yeah. That, I guess, have impacted you, either positively or negatively, but I guess made a difference or left a mark on you in some way. Yeah. Would you mind, well, introducing the songs and tell us the reasoning behind them? Um, So the first one was from an album that I think probably, probably that, that, really helped me when I was younger and the album was 10 and to be honest I probably could have chosen any any of the songs on that album um but the one that I chose is Jeremy um because it just evoked something so powerful to me the video this is you've got to go go back in time this is when MTV was unbelievably powerful and this video was written as once to high school shooting and sadly you know 20 years on, we still haven't really moved on from that, sadly. But that whole album, and in particular that song, um, enabled me to go, other people have these kind of extreme levels of emotional responses to stuff. And I used to sing it at the top of my voice. So um, the first one is Jeremy by Podcast. Is that the album that Black is on as well? Yes, exactly. Black is just before Jeremy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Love that song as well. The second one is, and again, you know, and I was thinking about you, and you know, and I was, I was thinking about, you know, obviously we were both Tori Amos fans, and uh, and with Tori, I was like, wow, she's, you know, she's she's been constant in my life, and her music has evoked and changed and and helped me sort of process many things and I wanted to choose one that don't think so many people know because actually it's probably her song that evokes the most to me and it's um from the album Quiet Girl Hotel and it's Northern Lad and it's just a song that just gets me and I've also I've always sung it to William so I think it just it stayed with me and the words are beautiful so yeah it's Tori Amos and Northern Lad. Had a northern land Well, not exactly had He moved like the sunset God who painted the First hill of my accent How his knees could bend I thought we'd be okay 
my favourite Tori Amos song off that album and now that you've said that I remember that that is one that we used to sing at open mic as oh, well oh yes we did yes, didn't we yes oh awesome my <laughs> it is yeah well obviously and only enhanced by you and I singing it you know <laughs> definitely <laughs> obviously um and then my fi- my final one so I was like I can't just only have two sort of slightly you know emotionally intense songs um I think you know when I when I eventually did sort of come out as being gay, uh, you know, as as I think most people, when you know, you kind of allow yourself that permission to be all of who you are. There was uh, the song. This song was playing all the time. And I remember driving my little Fiesta and singing it at the top of my voice, just being like, "Woohoo!" Made me feel amazing. Um, and it's um, Shapeshifters, Lola's theme. Don't know that one, so I must. Yeah, check I'm that a out. different person. Ah, that one. Turn my world around. So when you <laughs> honestly, you will know it. I promise you'll hear it. And you'll be like, oh yeah, and it is cheese aroma. <laughs> Or just around yeah. about the time that you did. When would that have been then? 
just 24, 25, I think. Officially coming out just after we left drama school. It's funny, isn't it? How, I mean, I, I don't know if that's the same for everyone. For me, it was at the start of HTS. You know, I went yeah. there looking much more typically lesbian than I do now, if you can believe that. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, short, spiky, dyed red hair. I think I was out to friends at home, but, you know, still very much in the closet at HTS, which is ridiculous when I think about it, because of course everyone knew. And that's the first thing that people said. But I guess it's just something, you know, you know that everyone knows, but you still need to get there yourself. And it took me a long time to actually be able to say the word. And I think I was very much like you, in the early days, mm. I hated the word lesbian. I felt like it was mm. not necessarily a dirty word, but it sounded like such an ugly word <laughs> in my yeah. mind. Um, yeah, so yeah, I probably yeah. would would have came out as gay or as a gay woman around about 2001. So yeah, just probably mm. just before I met you. Yeah. And yeah, well, I wasn't sure in regards to yourself if that was, you know, journey that you took throughout drama school or was it after you left Mm. yeah I think I think because so much as I understand acting is very much about the trail of truth and I went to drama school to carry on learning how to carry on pretending and actually you know and you've just mentioned Anne-Marie um and I remember at the end of the first year so Anne-Marie runs an amazing drama school now and and is an amazing MD as well and and I remember at the end of the first year she just kind of sat me down and was like you can't carry on being like this. And and it was the start and a whole load more kindness and things. And it was the start of me starting to deal with my childhood and what had happened to me and how I'd been brought up. And then I think by the time I'd left, I felt emboldened enough and brave enough to actually look at that bit because I had enough headspace as well. So yeah, for me, it was definitely post-drama school that I was like, okay, I'm now ready to do this, you know. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's a, a beautiful, good thing. Hurrah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funnily enough, I think it was Anne-Marie that sat me down and very much had a similar chat. Yeah. <laughs> role of counsellor, yeah, yeah, that she sort of took on very well. And um, yeah, 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 yeah. I always remember her saying, kind of to, to the whole group, really, but I felt it was pointedly, you know, aimed at me, Yeah, is that you can't act on an act. You know, I felt right. like she was staring at me. <laughs> And uh, she was the first person I came out to, so that yeah. itself was a was a relief and a release as yeah. well. You know, kind of just saying the words. Yeah, hugely, hugely important. And you know, and I and I think everybody has their own different timings and different journeys. And and the weird thing was probably same as you. You know, you were you. I was with new people that I met. I was fine with kind of trying that out as a new identity, but I had a real deep fear about telling people that I'd known for a long time. Whereas actually, you know, I remember sort of going down to meet one of my very old friends and the whole drive down, I'd just practice, right, and just say, and I'm gay. Hi, Claire, I'm gay. Hi, I think I'm gay. And then I got there and I told her that I had something to tell her. And we talked for about 20 minutes and she went, Emma, is there not something you want to tell me? Come on, quite possibly, am I? Uh, am I possibly, but I'm not 100% sure, but so, but just to let you know, I think I could possibly maybe, it might be a little bit smidgen gay. <laughs> she just looked at me and I've known her since I was seven she just looked at me and she went I thought you had some, you know she was like I've known you were gay since you were 12 I thought there was something wrong I, I thought you were going to come and tell me you had cancer or something <laughs> and I was why did you not tell me <laughs> <laughs> you know 
so yeah yeah it's a it's an important thing and we all have our own different journeys doing it definitely there's something it's difficult to explain unless you've been through it yourself yeah because you know I guess a lot of people have that reaction that it's no big deal and it's no big deal to them and you know of course it's fine we've all always known but that yeah. isn't the case is it for everyone and for every no. great story and great response there's so yeah. many you know 10 times yeah. worse the opposite of that and I think that is just you know the back of everyone's mind and you know section 28 was a thing for a long time you know yes yeah. I'm, I'm someone that went into the teaching industry Mm. You know, knowing that many of the old school teachers still kind of thought that that was a thing and you shouldn't promote gayness and, you know, yeah, things are better. But I, I do understand that it's still, you know, very much, like you said, uh, it's your own personal journey and, and, and people shouldn't mm. be pushed to come out until they're ready. And it's funny, yeah. like my, my first response you know, to a friend that said, well, I always knew is, why didn't you tell me? You know, I didn't know. <laughs> but actually, you know, I would not have responded well at all to someone no. broaching that no. subject with me. <laughs> no, and also, you know, and, you know, and, you know, as I, as I joked, I'm a tiny, tiny bit older than you, but it's also that thing of, you know, in the, in the 90s, there were not many sort of gay women lesbians out as kind of role models you know I went to an all-girls school so that was really complex so there's loads of reasons and you know and you know and, and we are very blessed that we live in the UK and obviously you know this being a podcast it could be anywhere in the world and I am fully aware but you know there are still some you know sadly um there's more and more countries that are now upping their levels of discrimination you know each year there are more places that are then doing more things about you know, uh, both gays and lesbians, and it's a, and it can be a really scary thing. So again, I think it's really important that uh, those of us that are in a, a place where we're really comfortable with our own sexual identity, and we're also in a country where we can talk about it and be married and be mothers and be sort of beacons for the younger generations. I think it's really important that we make sure that we do tell our stories because if that helps one person find their own journey, then that's been worthwhile. I took a show to Elfest. I don't know if you've been there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've not um, been, but I know of it. Yeah. Probably a one-woman show that I started writing maybe as far back as HDS. Uh, it, right. went on the, it went on the back burner for a long, long time. I sort of had an outline of what I wanted it to be and just never got around to really finishing it. And mm. I put in you know, a pitch for it to be on the acting stage at this Elfest right. two years ago. Um, it may have even been last year, I can't remember. And okay. I hadn't written it. I wasn't really expecting to get, you know, to get through and they chose it. <laughs> and I was like, right, I've got to write this then. <laughs> I, I love that when you sort of go, oh, I'll just throw that in and, you know, I haven't actually created. And they're like, great idea. And you're like, what is? Oh, the thing I haven't written. Hurrah! <laughs> I actually had to ask the woman to send the brief back to me because I couldn't remember where I'd saved it. I couldn't remember what exactly I said I was doing. So um, she did, she sent it back and yeah, it was great. And that sort of, that was about my coming out journey really from, you know, from the, the first time, you know, I went on a dodgy date with a bloke 
trying to mm. convince myself that I was straight, you know, and all the nightmare comical situations I found myself in while doing mm. that. Mm. And yeah, it was great. I mean, you sort of feel like you're preaching to the, you know, you're preaching to the converted. Yeah. You really need to take that show somewhere that isn't a lesbian festival. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, you know, yeah, but it's, it's great. And it's written now, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, anybody listening producers wise Claire has a great show that she can bring out from the LGBTQ community. And uh, no doubt it will land very well. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I guess, to wrap things up then, you've talked mm. a bit about you as a clown and about your podcast clowning. You haven't mentioned Barbara much. No, I haven't. So <laughs> can you tell... So I- Tell us about Barbara. Yeah. So, so Clowning Around is my podcast. And uh, again, it's a, a sort of beautiful place that allows me to pull together, you know, my business and my theatre world. And um, Barbara has been a clown that I've had for literally years and I've never known where she, where she was going to land because I wanted to get people to laugh and think, I was like, well, I want to have all people from lots of different worlds. So I've had, you know, I've had Rhea Jones from the top musical theatre stars. I've had somebody that's a CTO, so technical officer of a really big gaming company. I've had planning around Formula One. So literally all the different people that I meet, I'm like, you're really interesting. But I didn't want it just to be me just getting them to talk about what it is they do. And so Barbara basically just comes up and basically completely subverts the conversation. Her best friend is Edna. She does a lot of knitting. She gets really excited when she talks to anybody. And she's, it's just a, you know, it's a natural place and, and she loves it. And it's so lovely to finally found a place. Yeah, that's Barbara. I have to be, I have to be wary about where she comes out because she'll just take over for the next half an hour. <laughs> just to wrap up then, is there anything you want to plug? You mentioned your podcast there. Where can people check that out? Where Oh, it's all on all over all of the usual platforms. So literally any any uh, podcast platform and planning around the podcast. Um, you know, in terms of what I'm up to, Instagram, Emma Stroud LDN. That's me in a nutshell. Well, thanks for your time tonight. I think it's all right. Thanks for having me. Hopefully, chat to you again soon. It's been nice. Yeah, to yeah, catch yeah. Up. It'd be nice. Yeah, it'd be really nice to do that and stuff. So, yeah, and, you know, and when the world isn't quite so crazy and we're all sort of allowed to kind of, you know, travel and do all of that kind of stuff, you know, we should uh, we should reunite and do a Tory cover for, uh, you know, just we can just literally make the world be like, oh, that, that was good. <laughs> we'll like, yeah, none of us remember. Um, yeah. Thanks for having Definitely. me, man. Yeah. Nice. Cheers. Yeah. Take care. Um, see you later. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Join us next time when I interview Jay Hoffman and Michael Phillips and we discuss Kylie Minogue and what it means to be a gay icon. Bye.